Second Peter is a warning. It's not that it's not about the gospel. It is. It's about who Jesus is. It's about what Jesus has done. And it's about what Jesus is coming again to do. And it's about the fact that all of that means he's saving you out of this veil of tears, darkness, chaos, and fear into a new land where none of those things are, where it's only goodness, hope, and wonder for all of eternity. But the warning is not that. The warning is that now that you know that, you can forget. Something that modern Lutherans don't talk about much, and I would imagine many modern Christian churches don't talk about much, is the fact that you can fall away. You can become lukewarm. You can decide to chase the world. The seed planted in you, bursting forth with knowledge that Jesus is God, can be choked by the weeds of this life, can be scorched by the stony soil around you. And so Peter writes to say, watch it, not as though it is up to you to save yourself, but as though you certainly can decide to forget. And you decide to forget by letting false things become what you listen to more than true things. He speaks very directly about false teachers, false pastors in the Christian church, thereby making them false churches. But as we'll see, this also just describes the way of the world, the way of those whose consciences are seared by their hunger for whatever they're hungry for. Before we get to that, though, let's make our way through the good news that starts the letter. You can find 2 Peter on page 1018 of that pew Bible in front of you. We're going to look at, to begin, the second half of verse 1. The first half, Peter says, this is by me. The second half, you can drop right down and see it's the second paragraph already. He says who he's writing to. This is key. This is key. You must believe he's writing to you. To those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, as a Jew himself, coming out of the Hebrew nation and having to learn through special revelation after the resurrection that Gentiles, pagans, people who are not Jewish by birth, also are saved by Jesus. You might remember the story of Cornelius. He now writes to say, this is part of the good news. That anybody who believes in the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ is now the true Israel. And that's who he writes to then. Those who know that they have no righteousness of their own, sufficient to stand on the day of judgment. That is, should your every thought and word and deed be held accountable to you, you won't make it. But you also know that the blood of Jesus shed on that cross stands as a righteousness in your place, a free gift to be received by simply knowing it did it. He is risen. He is risen. Alleluia. To you who believe this, more of it in verse 3. His divine power has granted to us all things 
that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. The way to say that is you're not only justified by grace through faith, you are sanctified by grace through faith. You are set apart by God, by his grace, through faith, in knowledge about Jesus himself. Knowledge of him and his call to you. And don't miss, the word call in Greek is the same root as the word church. The English word church makes all sorts of trouble because we lose it. It's the called together people. That's what the word means, right? So your knowledge that you are being called together to believe in Jesus is him granting to you all things necessary for life and for godliness. That word's going to come back in a moment. Godliness. Think piety. Think religion. Think prayer. Godliness is not about how good you are, how moral you are. It's important to be good and moral. But to be godly is to believe in the true God, huh? to know who he is, to have old-fashioned word, theology. just means to know God is what that word means. He's granted that to you. Verse 4, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises. So that through them, the promises, you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. Like three things in there that are huge. He's granted to you, first off, you get to partake of the divine nature. This doesn't mean you get to be God, but in a glorious mystery. The personal union of the human nature and God's nature in the person Jesus Christ has personally unified with you so that you are part of Jesus and Jesus is God. You then participate through Jesus in the divine nature. Now, does that mean you're going to shine like the sun actually on the last day? Yes. Does it mean that you're greater than the angels already? Yes. Does it mean that you get to say, I'm God, nature, obey me? No. No. Instead, you get to say, Jesus is the head. And in all things where you have need, you're going to know to pray to Jesus. And you're also going to see that when you come forward to participate in the Holy Supper of Jesus Christ, you are literally participating in the divine nature by eating and drinking the divine nature. Hidden under man, hidden under bread and wine. That was the first one. Second, this makes you escape from the corruption that is in the world. In the last few years, this has been perhaps more evident. I would suggest that up to the point where you realize things are a bit crazy out there in the last two years, you were just hypnotized. You were just mass formation psychosis with the rest of America into thinking something had changed. And we figured out how to make the world work and it's going to be like this forever. And hopefully many of you are like, oh, it isn't the 80s. Whatever the 80s taught me, that wasn't, that wasn't quite true. Yeah, There's corruption in this world. So now you're escaping that corruption. That means when you see things not going the way they ought to go, it shouldn't be a surprise to you. And in fact, you can rejoice knowing that it will have no bearing on the rest of your life because even the part that gets hurt 
waiting for his return, waiting for you to go to rest in your grave, isn't even that much of the rest of your life. The smallest child who will live from now until 70 or maybe 80 years from now, that's but a small pinch of the rest of your life as a Christian. And then to know that you, in that pinch, are escaping the corruption. It cannot contain you because you participate in the resurrected man already. This then is connected to escape from, and he'll talk about this more, your own sinful desire. And that's where the work of discipline is going to come in. Let's go ahead and look at verse 5 where our red text picks up because this is what it means to fight against your sinful desire. Verse 5, for this very reason, right? Because you're a Christian, because you're saved, make every effort to supplement your faith, the thing that saves you, with virtue and virtue with knowledge and knowledge with self-control and self-control with steadfastness, steadfastness with godliness, godliness with brotherly affection, brotherly affection with love. Let's rewind. That's too much of a list here. Yeah, let's take them a piece at a time, right? Supplement your faith with virtue. You believe Jesus is king. You believe he's risen from the dead. All right, so that means you no longer want to be trapped in your sinful desire. You want to pursue virtue instead. You want to be good instead of evil. But if you go out in the world today, you'll find many people who say, this is good, while saying something that's actually evil. And so if you do not supplement your virtue with knowledge, your attempts to be good will actually make you more evil. And so you want to pursue not only virtue, but knowledge of what God has said virtue is. Once you learn what God has said virtue is, and did you know it's the Ten Commandments? I mean, that's a good summary right there. Once you know what virtue is, you must supplement that virtue and that knowledge of it with self-control. Because when you find out it's not about just not murdering, it's not about just not speaking evil of your brother. It's actually about not hating your brother. You're going to quickly find that you have a lack of virtue in you. The knowledge of virtue will expose your sin. And so again, the goal is not to become perfect. It's actually just to keep the evil inside. <laughs> You're going to find it inside all the time. But by self-control, you can mature into a person that doesn't let the evil get out and hurt your neighbor or your brother around you. That's self-control. As soon as you start trying to practice self-control, you're tempted to let your temper get the better of you. You realize, I must control myself. You're also going to find that creates suffering. Yeah, That's why Christianity is hard to sell. <laughs> Here, have a package of suffering. And nobody really wants that. But this is just the thing. Suffering, steadfastness, the ability to not be moved by others who hurt you is a superpower. It is a willpower. It is a discipline that allows you, again, to be your own person when you understand that you're your own person under a king who has shown you, redeemed you into the righteous way. Yes? So you must then add to that self-control the steadfastness which endures. As soon as you try to endure the suffering that comes upon you, when you try to be a good person and have to exercise self-control, you will find out you're not very good at that at all. And so you need to add to your attempt at patience, godliness. Now remember what I said about godliness. This is prayer. 
This is realizing I don't have it. And so in the moment where you're trying to have self-control, it's not about digging deep and finding it inside. It's about remembering that God has put you here. This very moment, the one you don't want to be in, where the curse word came out of your mouth, God has put you here. Huh? And in that moment, rather than, if you can, rather than, oh, curse this, how about Lord have mercy? How about hallelujah? How about anything that acknowledges that God's in charge and you are not? And so if you're going to be a better person, it's because he is going to do that to you. And then once you go back to that spot, wherein you are saying to God, I'm trying to be good, but I'm not doing it so well. Have mercy on me. Now you know what to do to your brother. Brotherly affection. Have mercy on the one you're trying to be better too. And your brother being other Christians who you know, who are walking with you, who want to forgive you as well, when they find that you repent, so also together we can go beyond only loving those who love us to love our enemies. And that's what true love really is. It is a love which does not only love when it gets good in return, but a love which sees that since God has loved his enemies, so also we who would be like him will learn to love our enemies. Verse 8, if these qualities are yours and are increasing, this does not mean, if you want to know if you're saved, you better see how good you are. It rather means, if you don't care about this, that's a problem. Huh? Hear it that way. Hear it as a warning, not as a law by which you will climb a ladder unto heaven. But if you don't have any desire to love your neighbor, if you let fits of rage and selfishness take over you and you have no qualm about that, you will be unfruitful and ineffective in the knowledge of your Lord Jesus Christ. Does that mean you're going to hell? Not necessarily. But then again, you're following that wide path. And the wide path does lead to destruction. So let me remind you though, St. Paul talks about this very clearly. There's only one foundation of salvation. That's Jesus' work for you. And then our life as Christians, while we wait for his return, is to build on that foundation. Imagine you're building a building, but the building's you, okay? The building's your body and your spirit and your mind. And Paul says you can build with gold or you can build with straw. And on the last day, as long as you have the right foundation, you're going to be saved, but you might have a lot of that straw burn away. Whereas the gold will be purified. It will show itself to be what it is. Now, what is that gold? It's not you. It's the word of God in your life, which we already know is going to endure. So it is, again, by clinging to what the scriptures clearly say, that you end up being one who is fruitful in confessing the name of Jesus. Christ who has died. Christ who has risen. Christ who will come again. And again, verse 9, then the warning, whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. So the warning here is, don't forget. It's possible to forget. Don't forget what? That Jesus is your Savior. That he is your God. That he is your King. And that he has provided for you a knowledge that will show you how to live as people set apart in this fading, dying world. But of course, many people will tell you that's a lie. Those people are false teachers. And false teachers are what he warns you about in chapter 2. So let's look at chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, where it says, 
about the Old Testament people, false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. Now, the warning specifically here is about false pastors. Pastors who are in the church. Pastors who say, I'm a Christian, or I'm a Lutheran, or whatever they say, but who then don't actually teach what the Bible says. Rather, they teach destructive heresies. Heresy is kind of a strange word. It just means lies, lies about God, things that are not true, anything that goes against what the Bible says. And this has many different forms that it can take. But the warning here again is to test your pastors, test the teachers of the church against the scripture, to know what it says yourself, lest someone come along and deceive you. This is not something I've done personally, but I've been told by someone, another pastor, who when he was in his younger days, in his first career, uh, he was working in a bank. And they were going to teach him how to spot counterfeit bills. And it was a really separate day. He got to go to this special place. He was so excited. They were going to show him all these counterfeit bills. He was super curious. What do these things look like? And then he was very disappointed because all they did for like two hours was talk about actual, crisp, brand new dollar bills. All the pictures and this not. But he, they also made them hold them the whole time. They had to look at it over and over and over again. After that was done, they didn't show him a single counterfeit. After that was done, they gave him a pack of bills. They said, find the counterfeit. He's like, I can't do that. You haven't shown me what they look like. Do it anyway. He flips and immediately, oh, this one. He knew immediately. Why? Not because he knew the false teaching well, but because he knew the true teaching well, and so he could not be deceived. That is, again, the call for you as disciples then, to absorb the true teaching of the Word of God so that when, not just false pastors, but when these talking boxes we all have to listen to start blathering their lies, you are not deceived by it, but in fact, perhaps, find yourself angered by the lies frustrated by the lies, willing to pray to God about the lies. And I'll commend to you the Psalms, because the Psalms are very much for praying against the liar. All right, then, we're going to continue learning about these false teachers. And I want, though, to expand it, though, because the false teacher is just like the highest level of unbeliever. But everybody who is not a Christian, everybody who does not believe in Christ, everybody who does not have the Holy Spirit within them will have a version of this same description. And the reason that I want you to to focus on that is so you will understand where we live. We don't live in 1950s United States where the vast majority of people go to church and the vast majority of people say, yeah, I believe in Jesus. We live in a very, very different time. And even more so, under 40, it's getting worse and worse. They don't believe anything about Christianity or even other religions except what they want to pick and choose. And so you must understand who these people are if you're going to love them. Yes? All right. So then, here it says it. Verse 2. Many will follow their sensuality. That's the key word. Sensuality. It means passion. 
It means emotion. It means how you feel. It's not that emotions by themselves are evil, but if they are not redeemed in Christ, the natural emotions of man will be evil. Huh? And so what will happen is something about the Bible will be said. Pick your favorite one. There was a worldwide flood. The earth was created in six days. Man is the head of woman in marriage. Pastors should only be male. There's no such thing as homosexuality. You pick your favorite one. They're going to say, oh, I don't like that. That doesn't, that doesn't seem right to me. And based on that feeling, I don't like that. The sensuality. They choose deception. They set themselves against God and against his word. And many will do this. Don't miss that either. Christ is so clear. Wide is the path that leads to destruction and many are on it. Narrow is the path that leads to salvation and few find it, he says. About false teachers explicitly, but again, you got to know this about your television set. Verse 3, and in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. You ever buy one of those sold only on TV things? Goodness gracious. In their greed, they will exploit you with false words. I remember when I was little asking my mom, how do we know they're not lying to us about commercials on the TV? How, how do we know? I was like six or seven. How do we know that they're telling the truth about these things? She said, don't worry about it. There's laws. I believe that till two years ago. I believe that till two years ago. Now I know that men are liars. And so it's, it's not that I don't believe anything I see, but I don't believe anything that goes against what the scriptures say. That's for sure. Yeah? I know that the foundation, the rock is here to be built upon. He says also the end of verse three, their condemnation, the liars, from long ago, their condemnation is not idle and their destruction is not asleep. That's a push forward to judgment day. And for you to recognize that on Judgment Day, it'll all be made right. So again, if, if you turn on the TV and you get mad about the liar who's far away, and there's all different kinds and versions of them, and you think, oh no, what can I do about it? I can't do anything about it. They're very far away. They have all the money. Okay, it doesn't matter. Their condemnation isn't sleeping, and it's not you who needs to condemn. That, that's coming. What you want to do is not be deceived anymore. Yeah? Learn how to pray to the true God rather than to trust in your actions. Let's jump ahead here now to um, verse 17 through 19. Uh, if you are going to read through Second Peter this week, if, if you haven't taken this challenge yet, the books are getting shorter every week. This one's shorter than last week. You can get it in about 15 minutes. Sit down and read it. What you'll find between what I just said and what I'm about to say is a bunch of Old Testament stories explaining that this isn't new. This has been the way it's been the whole time, all along. Yeah, And it gives you all these examples. I'd love to spend more time on them, but we're not going to today uh, for the sake of getting through other things. We're going to jump ahead to verse 12 of chapter 2, where he continues to talk about what kind of heart the greedy liar has. And please remember, this is what kind of heart the non-Christian has. This is what kind of heart you have by nature without the word of God feeding you. The difference between you and the non-Christian is they don't have the word of God feeding them. So all they've got is this. 
Verse 14, they have eyes, excuse me, I said verse 12, didn't I? But these, like irrational animals, creatures of instinct, oh, I don't like it. First instinct, first thought, irrational. They are born to be caught and destroyed. Hear how much God hates sin in that. You may have heard it said, love the sinner, not the sin. And there's there's a way that that can be true, but you must also understand the Bible teaches that God hates sinners. He hates them because they sin. He also so loved the world that he has saved sinners. But the sinners who don't want to be saved, they're doubly worse now. It's even worse than it was before. Before, they were just irrational. When they hear about Christ and reject him, now they are doubly evil. They are then born to be caught and destroyed. Nothing more. That's all their life has. It's very sad. That's why, again, thanks be to Jesus, not such are you. And let's learn how to open our mouths so that others might hear and believe and not be trapped in that idolatry. But what they do in their arrogance is they, rest of the verse, blaspheme about matters of which they are ignorant. <laughs> Again, I, I mentioned this in the first service, and it's barely worth the time. But there, I saw a video this week of a, a group of pastors having a little round table discussion on, on sexuality. And the guy with a collar on, just like mine, was talking about how the point of Jesus washing his disciples' feet in the upper room was to show how transgenderism is something we need to accept in the church. Okay, I mean, I mean, yeah, it's, it's a bit of a leap, don't you think? I do think it is. Blaspheming about matters of which they are ignorant. That one's obvious. But like I said before, uh, you've probably been part of this or seen this. Maybe not. But we, as a Lutheran congregation, practice closed communion. What that means is we believe communion is tied to pastoral care. So if you don't have the pastor caring about you, knowing who you are, and holding you to account, then we ask you to commune at the church you want to go to elsewhere, rather than here. But you've probably seen, or been with, or heard about, someone who has come in and said, well, that's really unloving. That's hateful blaspheming about matters of which they are ignorant. Don't even take the time to ask. They just get angry. I remember vividly a conversation I had with a a family in Philadelphia. They were both American Baptists. This is not Southern Baptists. They're a bit more liberal. We'll say it that way. But she was so angry with me that I would not commune her. And we're sitting having coffee afterwards talking. And she is so angry. So finally I said, now look, 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 you're a Baptist, right? Yeah, I'm a Baptist. You don't baptize babies, right? No, 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 that's wrong. Okay. So if I go to your church with my baby and say, baptize my baby, and you won't do it, am I hateful? Well, no, of course not. Or are you hateful? No, of course not. Now, hopefully you, even though I messed up a little there, caught the connection, right? So again, what do we learn from this? When someone gets angry about Christianity, it's because they're ignorant. When they teach against the Bible, they're spreading ignorance. And with ignorance is darkness, a shadowing, a lack of an ability to see. And so they also will be destroyed in their destruction. That's the rest of the verse. Verse 13, suffering wrong as the wage for their wrongdoing. This is pretty key. The punishment for coveting is coveting. God doesn't have to sit up in heaven 
and be like, oh, that guy's coveting my sense and locusts. He doesn't need to do that. The guy has coveted. He's already unhappy. It's the definition. I see a thing I want. I don't have it. I'm disappointed. That's the punishment. Huh? The punishment for sin is always the sin itself. It bears with it its own fruit, and it begins to harbor on, to bind on to your conscience. So understand then that those who are out there living lives in which they have rejected the simplicity of things like the Ten Commandments are receiving in themselves the punishment. When you see our society have murder rates increasing in every major city in the country this year, I saw it just one day this week in Chicago, South Chicago, shot 16-year-old male, shot 15-year-old female, shot 13-year-old female, shot 11-year-old male. When you see that, understand, it's sad. It shouldn't be. It's the punishment of evil doing evil. A government and a population who don't believe in goodness. They don't believe in just laws. They only believe in more power and more money for themselves. And in teaching the people that they're mere animals, monkeys developed from who knows where. And so go pursue your life. And if you get a smartphone, good for you. That's about it. What do you expect them to become? Hmm? wrongdoing is punished with more wrongdoing. And so you also find, and you will find this among those who don't read their Bible, but are also claiming to be Christians, they count it pleasure to revel in the daytime. They are blots and blemishes, reveling in their deceptions while they feast with you. They have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. They entice and steady souls. They have hearts trained in greed, accursed children. Uh, they have no shame, is what it says. And if you've never seen the gay pride parade, I don't know if you want to see it. It's gross. There's a lot of shameful things done in pure daylight without any shame. Mm. And then uh, eyes full of adultery. What is it about? It is about the free love of being able to use your body for whatever makes you feel good, as if there's nothing in the world but pleasure to seek. And so they also then always want you to say, oh, tell me it's okay. You also have to agree that we're allowed to do this. You have to say it's a good thing. And so by this kind of manipulation, playing on your heart, they entice you to follow them into their greed. Mm. Let's move on to verse 17 through 19. Same kind of description now, more imagery though. These, that is people who don't have the Holy Spirit, are waterless springs, a well with no water in it, yeah? Mists driven by a storm. How fast does it blow away? It can't even stand on its own. For them, the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved. That's hell, that's hell. For speaking loud boasts of folly, remember saying things about which they are ignorant, they entice by sensual passions of the flesh, they appeal to how you feel, they entice those who are barely escaping from those who live in error. That is, the plan the devil has through the wicked is to get you who have found Christ's righteousness to forget the thing we've been warning against all the way through this sermon. And so, verse 19 very key tactic they take. They promise freedom, but they themselves are slaves to corruption. 
You can think all the way back to Genesis 3, where the devil said, Oh, you will not die. But if you eat this fruit, you will be like God. Huh? The, the, the pitch is always that it will be better. I mentioned close communion. After that person walks away angry because we didn't commune them the first time we met them and they go to a church that teaches evil things, someone will say, oh, close communion means people leave our church rather than stay at our church. We should get rid of this teaching so that more people will stay at our church. Yes? And so in that way, they promise freedom. Let's get rid of the true teaching and it will be better off. But the fact is that is slavery to corruption. Again, it's like letting the gangrene in your left toe stay there and be undealt with. I don't know how much you know about gangrene. It starts really small. And you know, if you leave it alone, you don't notice until you're dead. And then you're dead. That's how it works. Yeah. Now, again, the attempt is for the devil to entice you away from Christ. And then verse 20, this is the deep, deep warning. Okay? For if after they, that's you who believe, have escaped from the defilements of the world, that's repented of your sin, through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, that is, you know you're saved by Jesus alone, if after that, you, they, are again entangled in them, that's evil, and overcome, the last state has become worse for them than the first state. Do you follow me here? It is an amazing teaching of scripture that we ignore that it's worse to be a Christian and fall away than to never be a Christian. You think, but isn't it all hell? Yeah, no, yeah, but there's levels. You might have heard it said more often that those who teach will be judged more harshly. And indeed, there's a special place in perdition for those who claim to speak for God, but who lie. So also the apostate Christian the one who decides to curse Jesus after blessing him. That one is in a worse state. And doubly so, perhaps you've read the book of Hebrews where it says that once you've believed and fallen away, the ability to come back is nearly impossible. Very impossible, in fact, except for the Holy Spirit can bring you back, but there's no guarantees there. Yeah. So again, hear the warning, not as those who are there. Hear the warning as those who are not there. But believe it and praise God for not being there. Praise God for knowing Jesus. Praise God for wanting to add to your faith virtue and knowledge and all these things. Again, verse 21, it would have been better for them never to have known the way of righteousness than after knowing it to turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them. Verse 22, what the true proverb says has happened to them. The dog returns to its own vomit. And the sow, after washing herself, returns to the mire. All right. So then, look at verse 11 of chapter 3. It's like right next to it on the page, just across the way. Since all these things, it's going to talk about them being destroyed, but since all this is true, let's start with that. Since everything that he's written so far is true, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? Since you know that you are those who believe. Since you know that he is risen. He is risen. Alleluia. How then shall you live now? He says in verse 12. 
waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God. So he pushes you back to Christ has died, Christ is risen, Christ will come again. You face these trials of the world by remembering that the world is passing away, but that Jesus has established the way out of this world, which is coming soon. And so you can know that the liars whose consciences are purged and seared off far away, you can do nothing about, their condemnation is coming on that day. You can know about your enemy, who you live with nearby, who will not repent, who you turn the other cheek to, who you do good to, and in turn receive evil from. You can know that God will make that all right on the last day. And you can know that your Christian brother and sister, whom you love but whom you don't like, that you're going to like each other on the last day. And if it's just bearing with each other now, that's the way it is. But on the last day, it's going to be great. And we're all going to rejoice in this new heavens and earth, which is coming. He's going to talk about that here in a moment. So uh, middle of verse 12 uh, mentions how this day is coming because of which the heavens will be set on fire. That's the current heavens. Can you imagine the moon on fire? The heavens will be set on fire and dissolved. Think like magma. It's all turned back into the elements. And the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But... According to his promise, that's how we started, great and precious promises. We are waiting for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness, that's everything that's about who Jesus is, what he's done for you, what he wants us to be, that righteousness will dwell. I can't tell you what it will look like. Revelation implies there will be no moon or sun for the Lamb. Christ himself will be the light. And I implied earlier that we'll reflect his light. We might shine like the stars on that day. Will the grass be green or purple? Will you eat hamburgers or chicken nuggets or just grapes? I I don't know. I don't know. But what I know is whatever it is, is going to be good. And I also know that little fear you get about it was like, well, maybe you won't have this thing that I like. I can promise you that's not how it's going to be. There will not be an ounce of disappointment on that day. So how then shall we live as people who believe there's coming a day in which there will not be an ounce of disappointment because of what Jesus Christ has done for us? And because we know that, we seek to add to that knowledge a a pursuit of virtue in this life, which means, again, putting down our sensuous desires, learning to say no to our belly and our instinct, and living lives that submit to the holy commandments of Jesus when they show us the way to go in life with our neighbors. I don't want to end quite on that, although we really are there at the end of the book and at the end of the sermon time. So let me just remind us one more time about this participation in the divine nature. Because I hope after this sermon now, you're not going to walk away worried about falling away. I hope that has not been the effect. I hope there's been a few moments there where you're like, oh, I can fall away. Oh, that's a little worrisome. That's okay. But I hope I've convinced you now what you should walk away as is a person who is confident you will not fall away because you know where the salvation is and you have every intention of getting more. You have every intention of opening your Bible this week and reading some of this again so that the lies that are so loud as a bunch of white noise aren't the only thing in your ear. 
And you have every intention, again, of preparing your heart and mind to participate in the divine nature of Jesus Christ by feasting upon his flesh and blood, given underneath these signs of bread and wine to confirm, to strengthen, and sustain you as those who are confident of your election, certain that you are disciples of Jesus. Why would you want to be anything else? Why would you not want to open your Bible? Now, I'll say this too. I said it in the first service at a different point, and I kind of skipped it now. Look, I get it. It's Tuesday. You haven't opened your Bible yet this week. You have that thought or memory. A pastor said, open my Bible. You maybe see it. You, you were wise enough to put it on your desk. So it'd be there, right? You don't have to get off a shelf. It's like right there where you need it. Maybe beside your bed, so that for five minutes before bedtime, it's sitting there, okay? And, and, but you see it, and you're kind of like, oh, it's boring. Or, or, oh, I'm just so tired. I don't have the energy for this right now. Okay. This is where you need to add to your pursuit of virtue, self-control. <laughs> I hope all of you brush your teeth every night without having to have an internal debate about whether or not you should do it. Okay. This is how reading the Bible once a day should be. And I'll tell you this too. If you set a timer for five minutes and then actually open it and start reading, read out loud, listen to what you're saying. The timer will go off and you will not stop until you've finished at least the sentence, if not the paragraph, if not the story that you're reading. And that will be because it is not boring. Whatever that feeling is, that's a lack of discipline. That's a lack of self-control. And I'll tell you, it's demons. It's the oppression of the demonic age in which we live, twisting your heart against you. And therefore, when you feel that, uh, that's the time to buck up and do it. Because that's what it means to be alive, to be able to say no to yourself and yes to what you know to be good. So again, come forward today with confidence, not fear, recognizing that the danger is here, but that he who loves you has already provided the way out. And that way is trust in his great and precious promises. In the name of Jesus, amen.